0: 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with
1: Stephen Hayden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hayden. Today, we're going to be... Well, how do I describe this topic? Okay, basically, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to tell a little story. Five or six years ago, when I was working for the AV Club, I wrote a column called the Five Albums Test. And the concept of this column was that I was gonna figure out a new way to define musical greatness, a new way to quantify musical greatness. And the way I was gonna do that is I was gonna look at the catalogs of various artists and I was gonna determine which artists were able to string together five or more very good to great albums in a row. And the artists who passed that test would be declared great. A pretty simple, straightforward idea, but in the execution, it ended up being a pretty, let's say, contentious exercise. When you start going down the list of artists, first of all, you have to have artists that have at least five records in their discography. So that eliminates Nirvana. And it eliminates Joy Division and the Sex Pistols. A lot of great bands, a lot of you know, iconic musical people. And then you have to decide what constitutes a very good to great record is it very good to great because I think it's great? Or is there some, I guess, more objective way of looking at it? So, that's, that's, so, so these were the things that were weighing on my mind as I started looking at different discographies. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the you know, Bob Dylan, uh, you know, the Al Greens, the, the, the Marvin Gayes, the Aretha Franklins, you know, these, these great artists. Did they pass the test? And I, and, I, and I figured it out in my column. I had a ton of different artists. And it was a silly idea, <laughs> oh, I did not think I was doing important work here, but I thought it was pretty fun. So I put it out there. And this has been one of those columns that has sort of followed me in my career ever since I wrote it. Like I'll be on Twitter and uh, I'll just get random tweets from people who will say, hey, does so-and-so band, do they now pass the five albums test or this, this band or this band? It's just been something that's kind of followed me for a long time. And I actually ended up writing a sequel to this column For Uproxx.com, I think think it came out earlier this year. You know, it's been one of these things that's been interesting for people to talk about. The five albums test. Which artists pass? Do the Rolling Stones pass? Well, it depends on your opinion of their Satanic Majesty's request. You know, if you love that record or you think it's a great record, then they pass. But if you don't, then maybe they don't. That's just one example. Like Bob Dylan. Does Bob Dylan pass? Well, it might hinge on Nashville Skyline. Do you love Nashville Skyline or do you say, well, this is a 27 minute record and uh, half the album is like uh, instrumentals. This album's not very good at all, but I love the sound of the record. So maybe it is great. So anyway, this has been something that has been following me my whole career. And I figured I want to do a podcast on this. I think this would be fun. And if you're going to do something like this, and by the way, I knew that if I was going to do this episode, that it would be the nerdiest episode of Celebration Rock ever. That uh, for the casual listener, the casual listener is going to drop in. There may be too much nerdy insanity going on for them to ever come back to this podcast ever again. But for those who are with me, that this might be the greatest episode ever, you know, so If I'm going to have the greatest, nerdiest episode of all time, who am I going to ask? And the first person at the top of my list was Rob Sheffield. One of the great rock critics in American history. One of the great music nerds. A man who recently wrote a story ranking every Taylor Swift song. I think he also did a story ranking every Smith song. This just speaks to his sort of encyclopedic knowledge of music history and his need to put things in an order. And I just knew that he was going to be the person. And if he didn't want to do it, then maybe I wouldn't be able to do the episode at all. So I reached out to him and I swear in maybe minutes time, he wrote back and he said, yes, I want to do it. And I was overjoyed. We got on the phone and we talked and you're going to find out in this podcast, like I kind of went into it with a plan, but it just turned into a street fight almost immediately. I mean, like a, like a peaceful street fight. And I just mean that it was sort of a chaotic conversation. Like we're just shouting out different artists. Does this artist passed? Is this artist passed? You know, we do that for like an hour. And an hour, and this hour, I swear, it, it passed by in like, like two minutes. <laughs> you know, this podcast could have been three hours long. And we may do a sequel to it someday. I guess we'll see what the response is like. But yeah, this is the nerdiest episode that we've ever done. But I think it's also a really fun episode. So strap in, get ready, get ready to be outraged, perhaps. I don't know. Anyway, here's me and Rob talking about the five albums test. So, Rob, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And you know, I emailed you because I was like, I want to do an episode on the five albums test—the silly column I wrote a couple years ago that people bring up from time to time, and it's kind of a fun thing.
2: Who, kind of a classic column.
1: It is sort of in you know it you know a very small c on the classic, but at any rate, I'm like, who can I have this silly conversation with? Who's going to be game? And you're at the top of the list, and the fact ah, that you, s- you. The fact that you said it's yes is very happy. You know, made me very happy. So
2: absolutely it, classic, a uh, classic Haydn mind game, and and <laughs> the sort of the arguments you can have over who counts this five album and who doesn't. is very intriguing.
1: Well, you know, before we get into it, what do you think about this? I mean, you know, because when we talk about, you know, I mean, I mean, you just wrote this exhaustive story about Taylor Swift, where you ranked all of her songs and. You obviously are a person who thinks a lot about discographies of artists and kind of delving in deep. I mean, do you feel like this is an appropriate standard, I guess, for measuring greatness? I mean, maybe not the only standard, but, you know, this idea of consistency that you can put five or more albums that are very good to great in a row. Do you feel like that is a legitimate thing or is that just kind of a silly thing? It doesn't matter if it's consecutive or not.
2: Well, now more than ever, at this point in the history of album making, artists have absolutely no incentive at all to make a <laughs> substandard album.
1: Right. There's
2: absolutely no reason to even put one out. Uh, artists at this point in, in the history of album making, if they take pride in the album as a prestige format, they want every album to be different and every album to be good. And that's why you're not seeing massive albums, ma- massively popular albums that are also bad. That's a weird thing. Like, they just don't exist these days.
1: You really think that's true? Like, you think it has to be a great album now to be massively popular?
2: It has to be great to its people. Right. With, uh, you know, not everybody's going to like it, but, you know, there's there's absolutely no reason for Taylor Swift to put out an album if it doesn't meet her exacting standards. There's no reason for Beyonce to put out an album unless it's going to be the greatest thing ever. But, you know, there's no incentive to put out an album now. if It's not very good.
1: I mean... As someone who's been listening to albums for a long time, and you know, and this is true for me too. I mean, you know, we're both the, the generation that we grew up with albums and albums being important. Um, I mean, do you feel like that's still the case, or is this something that only exists because artists want to make them?
2: No, it's it's very interesting to see how much that the the album, the way albums are now, are so different from how we all would have predicted it ten or or fifteen years ago. That back when music went digital and, and we all thought, oh, now it's going to be a la carte tracks. You know, uh, listening to albums is now, you know, and old people think it's an old school, old fashioned, moribund way of listening. It's the exact opposite. Artists take more pride in albums now than ever. A, a long running artist thinks of an album as a statement and an, an album as, as a key part of being a prestige artist. And so for artists in all genres, whether it's pop or hip hop or country or, or rock people make albums as albums and, and they want the album to be something special.
1: Why do you think that is? I mean, because like you said, I, I feel like when iTunes became a thing and that seemed, you know, and I mean, now downloads seem like almost a thing of the past. I mean, it's now it's all streaming, <laughs> but you know, it's like we, we've already gone through this, the download era, which is crazy. But you know, there was this assumption, like you said, that, well, albums are done now because people are just going to listen a la carte, but you are right in that they're, is still this thing where like a Kendrick Lamar or Beyonce or, you know, even Kanye, like they, they put out these albums and they want them to be received as albums, even if they know they're going to be streamed and, and maybe heard out of order and stuff. I mean, is this, I mean, do you, do you feel like there's like a sense of like artists want to be, to be part of a continuum maybe? Like they want to be measured against the greats. So they have to kind of work in that same realm or you know, why do you think that's continued?
2: Yeah, there's something about the long-form format. You know, when, and, and, I mean, when Kendrick puts out an album, he expects and, and wants you to listen to it all the way through in order. Uh, he, he designs his album as an album, and he wants it to be better than anybody else's. And he usually spends a, a considerable amount of time during the album explaining why it's better than anybody else's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all um, right.
2: that's something that artists you know, it, it, it's something that's exciting about the, the sort of the album format as an art form now, is that artists take more pride in them than ever. And it's it's, it's amazing to see that, that predictions about the albums all through the 80s and 90s, everybody said, well, that's an old 70s, 60s way of listening. The album is, you know, it, it's going to be outdated. And as it turns out, that the album means more than ever. It's interesting that someone like Rihanna really stands out as a long-running singles artist who really doesn't care that much about albums, which is these days extremely rare.
1: Right. Although Auntie, I thought, was like one of her best albums as an album, like her last yes, album, I, like really kind of yes, stands up in that regard. And there's not—I mean, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong—but I don't think there were a ton of hits off of that record. I mean, that is maybe more of like an album, album versus maybe some of her of her previous records.
2: Yeah, there was something fascinating about it. It was the first time that she was saying, okay, I am now making an album as album. Like right. you said, it didn't have as many hits as, as you know, she usually has. But, you know, it's something that to be an, an, a serious big-name artist now, uh, or you know, or even a big deal in, in your particular genre, an album is how you stake that claim.
1: So let's let's get into it here. You know, Let's start off. Like, do you have, I guess, an album run for an artist that you would put above everything else, like a favorite, or like the, that you think is like the greatest? Either in terms of like the albums themselves, or because it was it was like a really long run, an exceptionally long run of like consecu- consecutively very good to great albums.
2: Well, I, I assume we're disqualifying the Beatles here, <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless, as you said in your original column, unless you really want to argue over the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. There's really I mean, some acts have to be sort of like sent off to the Hall of Fame because you know it's silly to argue over you know over whether Led Zeppelin counts or whether the Beatles count or whether Kanye counts. Some artists are just you know at that level.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's interesting you bring up the Beatles because in my column I wrote about there are some artists who don't make the test that you think they would, and we can maybe get into that later. I mean, the Beatles definitely make it. I would say. That, I mean, because there's Yellow Submarine is sort of an outlier record, but like, would you say that like Beatles for Sale is a great record?
2: Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Beatles for Sale is very easy to underrate. And and part of its fascination now is that it's it's the underrateable Beatles album. Right. It's the one you can have an argument over, which you really can't with any of the others. You know, what are you going to like have an argument in a bar about whether the White Album is good or not? No, you're going to argue over Beatles for sale. I was in a bar last year uh, and it was like two in the morning. It was, it was Lake Street, a bar in in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And uh, the the bartender put on Beatles for sale at two in the morning. And it was really funny how everybody sat there, you know, like me and my wife were at one table and there were people scattered through the bar and everybody's listening to this album all the way through. And it's shocking how good it is the originals are so good and the covers that are blown off covers you know they're fine for what they are and then another song hits you like you know like babies in black or something like that and it's like oh this is a very strange and unique beatles album but it's it's it's, it's got its own style
1: now like if i can play devil's advocate for a moment here like with beatles for sale in particular there are some tremendous songs on that record you have no reply babies in black you have i don't want to spoil the party which you write about in your book, and I was so glad that you singled that song out. Your book, Dreaming the Beatles, by the way. I'm going to give you a plug right now. Thank you. But, but there is Dreaming like,
2: the Beatles available in bookstores
1: now. <laughs> but you talked about I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, which is, I think, one of the great unsung Beatles songs in their whole history. Great harmony, John Lennon, Paul McCartney vocals on that record. But is it a matter of that record actually being great or is it great because it's the beatles and like you love to hear the beatles playing and it's sort of an interesting record in their in their discography it's a little under maybe under listened to so it's kind of fun to go back to but if you look at it on the merits like isn't there a lot of filler on that record couldn't you say that uh, maybe we should lower that a couple of spots and that kind of breaks their streak between like hard day's night going into uh rubber soul is that fair to say or do you reject that out of hand
2: I think it's fair to say that it ranks below those albums. I generally think of that album, like I said, until I heard it sort of out of the blue last night in a public place, in a room full of people, some of whom knew the album and some of whom didn't. But everybody was you know, visibly just kind of like caught by it. And, uh, and it's funny, I, 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 my wife and I kept saying out loud, this sounds so good. And it's funny because it's you know, the album that we think of as the eight great originals and then six blown-off covers. Right, But some of the covers are, just don't do it for me. I'm, I've never been a big fan of, of rock and roll music, their version on that album. That's not even one of my favorite Chuck Berry songs. Their version of uh, uh, Kansas City isn't that good either. So those are two tracks that I've skipped consistently since, since I was a little boy. What,
1: but, about, uh, what about Mr. Moonlight? Because I feel like people, like, they'll, they'll crap on that a little bit as being like one of the worst Beatles songs ever. Like, and, I know, and that's also another cover. I actually like Mr. Moonlight. I love Paul McCartney's vocal on that.
2: I love Mr. Moonlight. (laughs) And it's such a weird song in their discography because it's funny because Beatles for sale, as everybody knows, well, I don't know if everybody knows, but the reason that album came together the way it did was because they needed an album out for Christmas and they were caught short of tunes at the deadline. So the night before it was due, they banged out five oldies covers, songs that they hadn't even planned to play. They just said, okay, we know this one, let's do this one. They just, like, banged out these songs that they already knew. And it's it, it's very blown off and part of the charm is that it's very impulsive and very very fast and, and very loose uh, and, and very strange. But Mr. Moonlight was the one that they actually put an astounding amount of studio time into. They really worked hard to make Mr. Moonlight come off. It's funny that you know hearing it as a little kid, you think of it as an old vaudeville song or something. It's it's a blues B side by uh, pian by you know piano red. It, it, it's a sort of arcane blues, great digging, hip, like hip pick. It, it's like really weird what they do to that song and how there's really no aesthetic explanation for how the Beatles completely, you know, cheesed and goths that song up.
1: <laughs> did they do that in Hamburg too? Was that a Hamburg song or not? I feel like it was, but you would know better than I would.
2: Yeah, it was one, it was one of those many, many Hamburg songs that they did. It, okay. It's really strange. I, I fell in love with Mr. Moonlight at a very strange It was uh, October 2003, and I was taking a walk through Central Park, and I was listening to my iPod since it was 2003, and I noticed that, you know, I was listening to It's All Too Much was the song I was listening to, and then I realized, hey, today is John Lennon's birthday. I think I'll stop by Strawberry Fields. So as I get close to the Strawberry Fields section of Central Park, I begin to notice that I'm not the only bright person who had this incredibly original idea today, and that there's a, a large group clustered around there and a bunch of people with acoustic guitars, and they've been singing John Lennon songs as a group since the dawn's early light. And they're clearly getting to the bottom of the barrel because they're doing songs like Ringo's Photograph and, and Paul's You Won't See Me. And then they start doing this song, and know, sun's setting by now, so they've gone through all the John songs that everybody knows and loves. And they're playing this song, and I didn't recognize it until the chorus. And so I was like, what is this? This sounds so good! And it was only, you know, and I was already singing along when I got to the line, Mr. Moonlight. And I was like, oh, wait, we've all been singing that one. (laughs) It's a great song.
1: You brought up something before that's an interesting uh, topic, which is, you know, I I think people, there are people who would argue that every Beatles album is very good to great, and the whole discography is essential. And you mentioned some other bands that people would maybe talk about with, like Led Zeppelin, for instance. Although, I guess In Through the Outdoor might be the wild card there. How you feel about that album?
2: Present was kind of bad, though,
1: isn't it? See, this is the thing about bands like this, and I think this is true for the Beatles. That, like, if you love a band so much or a band that's so important, like that, for me, it's always hard to separate separate out of like my affection for the album versus like how good it is. Like, I love every Led Zeppelin album. Is every Led Zeppelin album great? That's what I have to ask myself when I'm applying this five album standard and Into the Outdoor probably isn't a great album. Um, and that's why I was asking about Beatles for sale before. If that, is that an album I love, or is that album actually great? Which, by the way, I mean, do you think that can actually be separated out? Do you think that there actually is a distinction between things that are great and things that you love, or if you love it, that means you think it's great?
2: It's a, it's a, it's a good question. I have to say, I love Into the Outdoor, too, because you know, I was a new wave kid at the time, and I was like, wow, Led Zeppelin are trying really hard to make a record for me. They ended up not making much of a new wave record, but they made, I mean, I I love that record. It's very anomalous. I, I like it a lot more than Presence. It's only sort of in latter years that people have begun to make contrarian claims for Presence.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, do you think that they fall off after Physical Graffiti then? Like, do you think that's the end of their sort of, I guess that would be six albums? Or it, it,
2: Yeah, I, I think they're back with In Through the Outdoor. I just, you know, I, it's you know, it's a very different and anomalous kind of Led Zeppelin record like all their records are different that that one it has its own i guess it's because it's such a jones dominated record practically a jones solo album planted on vocal
1: right uh, a band that i would make a case for their discography being good at least their 70s discography which i i don't really think of the albums after this but would be steely dan and you and i absolutely ta- you and i talked about this a little bit The Wild Card and Steely Dan's run, which is, I think, a seven-album run from uh, Can't Buy a Thrill to Gaucho, is The Royal Scam. And I know there's people that don't like that record. I mean, how do you feel about The Royal Scam? I mean, because I assume you like all the other records. Do you think The Royal Scam disqualifies them at all or breaks up that run of albums?
2: I've got to say, when I listen to The Royal Scam, I'm like, this is plainly not as good, not even on the same plane as any of the others. The high points are so high, but then I forget the songs that just aren't very good. I forget the <laughs> reggae songs. Let me be blunt.
1: Like Haitian Divorce? Haitian Divorce, I like that song. That's one of the reggae songs. I'll, I'll defend yeah. that
2: song. I, I guess I, have to, I went back to this album you know, a couple of weeks ago, as, as we all did, when, when Walter Becker passed away. And I was like, Yep, you know, this album, you know, don't take me live is so great, Sign and Stranger is so great, The Royal Scam is so great, a lot of stuff on that record. that I'm like, Oh, this is why I never play it. But you know, it's it's a kind of thing where it seemed at the time like, uh, yeah, it, it it just seemed like kind of a placeholder for the next record.
1: Right. Are there are there any other discographies that you look at as being sort of like, oh, this is spotless, everything they did was great. I would say their entire run well, was good. It,
2: it's funny when when I, when I was first reading your piece about the five album rule, like I think like five or six years ago, and uh, it's funny that the first name that popped into my head was Creedence. Well, of course Creedence. And it's really funny to see that they kind of just don't cut it. They have four albums, four of the greatest rock and roll albums ever made, all in a row, all in a span of sixteen months. Right. You've got Green River, Willie and the Poor Boys. Uh, Cosmos Factory and Pendulum, which are all to, to my mind completely flawless records, and I thought they'd be a snap for the five-album test. But Bayou Country before that it does not cut it, and boy, Mardi Gras does not cut it. <laughs> I, I was like, that's, that's the fascinating thing with the five-album rule. I would think that Creedence, off the top of my head, would have said that they were the most likely band to just you know breeze past that, and you know that's why it's such a tough standard.
1: Well, what about you know? and this is something I talked about in the original column, like two of my favorite artists ever acts with, you know, Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. And I'm not, and, and they both have way more good albums than just five, you know, they have tons of great albums, but stringing them like five great ones together, I thought was harder than I, than I thought it would be for those. And I, with Bob Dylan and, and this, this, this got me a lot of grief when I wrote my original column, but like uh, with him in the sixties, I I find that like uh, either the times they are changing, which I can kind of make a case for actually now I've come to like that album a lot more, but uh, or Nashville skyline, which is an album I love, but I don't think it's very good. (laughs) Like there's some real crud on that album, but I love the sound of it.
2: Yeah. But like uh, another side of Bob Dylan to John Wesley Harding, pretty much like pretty much a flawless run
1: uh, yeah I mean I love the a songs of a...
2: songs on another side of Bob Dylan there's, there's a couple of weak songs I don't like Ballad and Plain D who does like Ballad and Plain but uh, <laughs> yet yeah, the times they are changing that would that would throw it off but because you know you've got another side of Bob Dylan you've got Bringing It All Back Home Highway 61 Blonde "The Blonde and John Wesley Harding that's kind of a, I think of that as a a, a spotless run
0: Hey, it's Derek Madden, producer of Celebration Rock. We will have more of the five albums test with uh, Stephen and Rob in just a second. But I wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you about my Brooklinen sheets. Now, I'm a single guy. And when you're a single guy, you have company over. You know, sometimes they might be judging your apartment. And one thing that the ladies will definitely judge is your choice of betting. Brooklinen has made an actual difference in my life in this way. I got a great set of luxury sheets from them. I got this duvet cover with the polka dots and these really nice striped sheets. And if I'm lucky enough to have anybody sample the bedding, well, it's pretty comfortable. I get some rave reviews on the bedding. I feel like that's one one test I actually passed. Now you you may not have this need. You you may have love in your life already. Uh, but Brooklyn uh, can help you too. I mean, you're going to spend a third of your life in bed, right? So you ought to have really great comfortable sheets. That's the whole idea behind Brooklyn, and They were founded in uh, April 2014 by a husband and wife team. See, they get it. On the philosophy that people deserve simple, beautiful home essentials without the luxury price. I mean, that's the biggest obstacle for getting sheets, right? Is dealing with the store and spending all that money. Now, you don't have to do either of that. This is luxury bedding underpriced. You got to try these sheets today. I love my Brooklyn and sheets. And if you try them, I think you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for Celebration Rock listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code CELEBRATION at Brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you love your new sheets. They offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try like I did. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code Celebration at brooklinen.com that's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N dot com promo code CELEBRATION Brooklinen the best sheets ever alright uh, now back to Steven and Rob and more Celebration Rock
1: like what about the Stones because you have Be- you know you have that great late 60s run that starts with you know Beggar's Banquet but to get to five you have to include Go Head Soup which I've always thought of as being a great album because it's the Stones sort of being burned out from the 70s you can hear the decay starting to set in and there's a real did, decadent did, vibe to that. that
2: Didn't you say that that was their great bad album?
1: Yeah, I feel well, I mean again
2: I, mean, it, I love it but
1: I love it too and this is what this is where again it gets hazy. I feel like with, with the thing you have to ask yourself over and over again <laughs> when you do this test is do I love the like is this album great because I love it or is it just great on its own? And I find that the thing that I love about Go Ted Soup is the exhaustion of it and the fact that you can hear heroin starting to take over Keith Richards life and you can hear this great beast of a band being weakened and yet still finding a way to keep going forward. And you have Jagger doing Angie and like, although I guess that was also a Keith song too. Um, I don't know, just the, the sort of decay in the band is what I love about that record. And also like a record like black and blue, which, you know they were they were rehearsing guitar players when they were recording that you know there's different guitar players and yeah. different songs and to me it's it's a fascinating record, even like when you have a song like Fool to Cry or something, which I don't think is a very good song but i the subtext of it I always think is interesting um
2: and angie I mean I love it it's fascinating. Angie seems to be as far as I can tell by my own like limited observation, Angie is the most hated by women stone song really like. As far as I know, like, the women in my life have always, like, really liked the Stones' misogynistic songs because <laughs> they're, they're very candid. They, they're very information-y about, like, how misogyny works. But, like, Angie, for some reason, I can't figure out. Like, that, that, that's a song. It, it, it used to be that, that at uh, at the library bar on Avenue A, a bartender, she would throw if you go Head Soup was on the jukebox. If you played Angie, she would, like, She'd, well she, you'd forfeit your uh your drinking and jukebox playing privileges for the rest of the night <laughs>
1: like do they feel like jagger's insincere because he's trying to be sweet is, is that the issue there like they- i
2: can't figure it out it's a, it's a it's a it's a mystery to me but uh <laughs> boy that song is divisive I, with with the stones and the five album test i mean a lot of it depends on on your perspective on satanic majesties, my friend that's the one that's a make or break for like this particular test.
1: And, uh, and that's another one, again, where I love the vibe of it. And I love that, I love the idea that they tried to make a record like that, even though it did not suit their strengths. So I love revisiting it for that reason, but there's some terrible songs on it. There's some great songs on it, too, like you know, 2000 Light Years From Home and... Uh, um, what's, that song, is that... Uh, uh, the Citadel. Citadel. That's a great song. Yeah, the lantern. Um, the lantern. Um, but like the like the bookend songs, like the "We're All in This Together" or something like that. Like that's kind of bad. I don't know. Like, do you
2: There's just li- God awful? Yes.
1: Do you uh, like that album straight up, or do you think it's uh, more of an interesting record than a good record?
2: No, I I love that one. So like <laughs> me, to me, that you know that that's that's in the the great pre beggars run. And another thing is, even if you don't count that one than, like, the five albums from the Rolling Stones now to Between the Buttons. Right. I mean, that's, that's five, five classic albums right there that, that only seem meager uh, compared to, you know, what they were doing from 68 onwards.
1: That's true. So you're not going to make a case for a run from, like, Dirty Work to uh, a Bigger Bang?
2: You know, I, I, I'll tell you, man, I was really trying hard to see if I could make a run from some Girls to Dirty Work. <laughs> but even I, who... who Passionately adores Dirty Work. I have to admit that that's a beloved and genuinely terrible album. <laughs> you can't get past the pastel suits, can you?
1: Right, right. It, Although it, all the albums up before that, though, I actually do really like. Undercover, I, I like a lot. Um, I
2: love Undercover, yes. And uh, I love Dirty Work, too, but you, know, you, you kind of can't with a clear conscience say that it's, it's at the same <laughs> level as Some Girls Are Tattoo You or Emotional Rescue or Undercover. It, it stands out from that fivesome, right? But I like with Dylan with late, I, with with Dylan. It, it's weird. I, I I thought with Dylan that the sort of uh, late late nineties run that he kicked off with uh, Time Out of Mind that 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 would surely qualify. But there is the Christmas album, <laughs> which messes things up because I love Together Through Life and I love Tempest. But
1: uh, see, I I love Tempest. Together Through Life to me is a little weak. And then the Christmas album, which I would almost be tempted to make an argument for just yeah. out of like <laughs> as a gesture, you know, like it's so wacky and like singular for him. I, I love that he made it. Like I'm glad that record exists in the world, even though I don't put it on very much. Um,
2: yeah. and, and you could count the two early 90s covers albums. That right.
1: Yeah, those are great too. That's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think <laughs> I have to admit with my original column that... The, I might have been trying to be provocative a little bit by excluding Dylan, just because I'm like, this is—I love him so much that I will sacrifice my uh, my most favorite son at the altar of this, just to show. But, I, I, but well,
2: you're hardest on the ones you love. You're actually—you're also a little hard on to by Voices. If I recall correctly, uh, you, you 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 thought the propeller and vampire on Titus weren't up to the same well, level.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, that's but, but, those,
2: I, but those are really great though.
1: They are, and uh, yeah, I think I am hardest on the ones I love. I, I think it's because, you know, and again I I go back to the same thing of like trying. I think I'm questioning my own love sometimes. Is my love clouding my judgment? Uh, so I'm extra hard, and you know, maybe extra critical on these albums that I love so much, and being you like,
2: got to be cruel to be kind.
1: Got to be cruel to be kind.
2: Speaking of whom. Uh, Nick Lowe produced a, a string of albums for Elvis Costello, I guess even before Nick Lowe. Well, at any rate, the, the first five Elvis Costello albums through Trust. And yes. That's a pretty magnificent run.
1: Yeah, definitely. That would be up there. I mean, I guess after Trust, Almost Blue, which I think would end it for me. And then he, gives, then he goes into Imperial Bedroom, which is another great record. And there's like a mini run in the 80s. Well, I guess there's Goodbye Cruel World, which I don't really like, Punch the Clock. But then you have that double shot of... Blood and Chocolate and King of America, which I think is really great. After that, he's pretty inconsistent. But yeah, that first five for Elvis Costello would be really great.
2: Um, I think Blood and Chocolate is really weirdly underrated these days.
1: It is. Well, I think Elvis in general. That's in the top
2: two or three for me.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh, King of America is actually an album I've been listening to recently after not playing it for a while. I think that album's really great. Um, yeah, it really holds up. Well, okay, you know, and this was, you know, we got sidetracked here, <laughs> talking about the titans of classic rock here. But to go back to my original question, is there, I guess, a favorite run that you have? Or, uh, you know, maybe, it may not even be the best, but is this something you kind of like because you like the albums and maybe you feel like it's a little unheralded and you want to make a case for?
2: Well, I I, I mean, the, the Al Green run from the, the seventies, from Al Green gets next to you up to I guess Al Green explores your mind. Yeah, and they get they get a little spottier after that, and, and then you know, then there's the Bell album, which is which is fantastic. But like Al Green gets next to you and let's stay together, and I'm still in love with you, and Call Me and Living for You and gets next to you. But those are like no, I mean like explores your mind. Come on, take take me to the river. On it, uh, those are those are just kind of six perfect albums.
1: Yeah, and he doesn't get enough love for being a great album artist.
2: No, in, in fact, I would, you know, a, a personal favorite, I, Green is Blues, the one before Al Green gets next to you. That's fantastic, too. I can't in clear conscience link it with the others because it's mostly covers, but uh, as, as an album artist who had tons and tons of great songs that weren't hits because he was just like, he and Willie Mitchell and that, that high-rhythm band was, were just churning out like, So many unbelievably perfect tracks that, you know, all those albums, they they, they fulfill a test that you want a great album to do, which is there are lots of songs on it that you have to play the album all the way through to to hear them, you know. Lots of not-famous songs on those records. Yeah, and... Anybody else could have built a legend around.
1: And, you know, when you were talking just then, like a parallel to, to CCR actually came up in a way, because you talked about how CCR produced all of these albums... Uh, in a very short period of time, and a lot of them are are fantastic, I mean especially those four you mentioned, and I feel like Al Green almost had a, a similar thing where he was making an album almost every year. I feel like he maybe even like doubled up some years. And the albums themselves don't differ dramatically in terms of how they sound from album to album, but he was just so good. you know, and they had a machine going there with Willie Mitchell, and like you said, that that band in Memphis, the, the high band, the high high records band that it was just like you don't have to change it up that much this is such a perfect thing and you know just keep it going and yeah he really did string like six or seven records i think in a row that Absolutely. Are really great
2: making two of them a year
1: right and and also yeah, it, and they all had hit singles but there's a lot of great not like not like the album cuts that are that are sort of undiscovered on those albums that are really great also
2: also no genuinely bad songs on those records
1: right yeah, exactly. And and like interesting covers. Like he did a yeah. great cover of Light My Fire, which on paper there's no way you would think that would be good. And yet he totally made it his own. That's like It's, it's- so good.
2: I wish he did more Jim Morrison covers. <laughs> He's so funny with that Jim Morrison poetry, you know, like well, you know that I would be a liar. He his recitation of it, is, it makes me wish he did Riders on the Storm. <laughs> Al Green's Riders on the Storm would have been the greatest thing ever.
1: <laughs> Another run that I love a lot um, that I think is in a similar vein, you know, I guess we're, we're kind of going into like non-rock genres here or runs that maybe aren't talked about as much is like Willie Nelson in the 70s from Shotgun Willie to Stardust, which was like a, yeah. f- a five-year period and he put out seven albums. It,
2: is Phases and,
1: uh, and Stages in that run? Yeah. I love that record. He, yeah, he put out a bunch of, like, I mean, in a way they're all sort of like concept records. Like Phases and Stages is very sort of like, a. it's about the course of a relationship, like a rise and fall of a relationship. And you have Red-Headed Stranger, which is an obvious concept record. Even like Stardust, a collection of sort of uh, old kind of crooner standards that he did and transformed and turned them into Willie Nelson songs. In a way, sort of, you know, the concept of it is that he's doing these old songs he's kind of like one of the first people to do that i mean now everyone does that once they get to a certain age you know from <laughs> rod stewart to bob dylan but willie nelson did it first um and and yet there's also in a way i mean they're not changing that much musically it, it, it still has that sort of jazzy country willie thing that he always has but that sort of being a really indelible thing like where he really became willie nelson on those seven records i think is a great run that I would say is maybe a little underrated that I would defend. Um,
2: Do do the Wu-Tang Clan qualify for you?
1: Well, okay, you're going to start with the first record. Are you going to include, I guess the thing would be Wu-Tang Forever would be a record that, you know, I I guess that's Wu-Tang's White Album, if you want to say. (laughs) Um, I I guess
2: I mean if you count Enter the Wu, and then you've got Method Man's T-Cow, and uh, Old Dirty Bastards' Return to the 36 Chambers, Raekwon's only built for Cuban links, and GZA's Liquid Swords, and then you've got Ghostface's Iron Man, which is my favorite of all those records. And that's like in in the space of like three years.
1: So uh, you're going to include... I mean, those are technically solo records, but they're under the sort of exegesis of of Wu-Tang, and there's obviously a lot of the same people involved. So you would group that all under Wu-Tang and include that in a run. Because I think that's somewhat of a controversial thing. I think you can make, <laughs> you can make the case for that, um, but I don't know. Uh, that that seems like cheating a little bit.
2: It, it, it might be cheating a little bit, though it's largely the same personnel in every record and the RZA of, like doing the music. The, the, the other asterisk in that selection would be the domestic man, he count, That's that's not at the level of the other four. Right, right. I want to but ask you, it, it, it was amazing I'm, I'm sure you remember at the time that those records were coming up like every you know four or five months to be like oh my god there's another like Wu-Tang Clan album and you know it would be credited to Raekwon or or GZA or or, uh, or Ghostface but but each one was topping the previous one
1: Well in like yeah I'm trying to think of like another example of this that you could, that you could compare it to and I mean this is going to be the weirdest comparison to Wu-Tang ever. But like, would you also make a similar case for Crosby, Stills and Nash and like, <laughs> and young? Cause they were a band, they were a collective and they were also putting on solo records while they were making uh, band albums. I mean, would you apply the same standard to them in terms of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to have a CSN run that also includes if I can only remember my name and songs for beginners and uh, the Stephen Stills records. Like, would you do that? Wow, for that?
2: that's fascinating. So, so I guess uh, the RZA is Neil Young, <laughs> and uh, Ghostface is Graham Nash. <laughs> well, I think I
1: think the RZA would be Stephen Stills because Stills was the production genius of the band, and Neil Young would be, I guess. Um,
2: yeah, Neil Young is Ghostface.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's dropping in and out. He's like a genius. Like, he's kind of on the periphery, but he has a, he has the strongest sort of individual uh, identity outside of the group.
2: Yeah. Crosby is clearly Old Dirty Bastard. (laughs) (laughs) That's the easiest one.
1: Figuratively and literally, really, with with Crosby.
2: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Older, dirtier, and bastarder than anybody. Uh,
1: I want to ask you, I mean, we're just sort of shooting around here. There's no way we're going to cover everybody that we would need to talk to, but, you know, know, we talked about the Beatles. I want to ask about another artist near dear to your heart, which is David Bowie. And when I wrote, uh, I wrote an update of of the five albums test uh, last year where I wrote about a a bunch of other artists. And for me, Bowie's great run of like unbroken great albums, it it sort of surprised me when I went through his discography because I kind of assumed that, well, it would start with the glam rock period or maybe there'd be, actually, I mean, I think there's like a couple with David Bowie because you have, I would actually... I'm going to screw up the numbers here, but I really love Space Oddity. I kind, of, I kind of go Space Oddity to Aladdin Sane, and then I go Young Americans to Let's Dance. And I guess I'm, I'm excluding uh, Diamond Dogs, because that's really the only album of that period that, that I don't really like. Um,
2: it's weird because it's, it's clearly weaker than all the others but it's still uh, just kind of a fantastic record.
1: So do you think he, he's stringing like 13 albums that are great then? Yeah,
2: I think from Space Oddity, which, which like you, that's a relatively recent, it's only been the last couple of years that I've been listening a lot to the, the deep cuts on Space Oddity and really appreciating them uh, rather than comparing them to you know stuff he did later. But on its own, it's just a fantastic album. To yeah. me, it's such a great song. Um, Teenage is one of those songs that sounds so much like Paul Westerberg wrote it that it's really strange. <laughs> so like, I guess a lot of songs are like this, a lot of '70s songs, especially. You go back and it's like, how strange is it that like Paul Westerberg did not actually write this song? Um, but you know, I mean, Diamond Dogs. It's still so good that it's just you know, that run from Space Oddity to Let's Dance is just kind of uh, it, it's it's astounding. It gets more astounding with time rather than less.
1: So, like, so you do end it with "Let's Dance," like you wouldn't carry it over to "Tonight"? Because I've heard some people defend "Tonight" lately.
2: Yeah, to me, that's that's to me that's a contrarian bridge too far. Tonight is just a crummy record, I think. I like you know, I like Blue Dean as much as the next guy, probably more than the next guy, um, especially if the next guy is wearing a turban and uh, harem pants and dancing in a video where he's wearing goldface. But I think uh, "Tonight" is is. it's it's clearly a a hitting of the wall of some sort. Um, With Bowie, to me, like the five, if you're picking the five best, they're all in a row from station to station to scary monsters. Right. um, Which is just such an astounding, like in, you know, a career that has so many other astounding periods. But uh, it's interesting because, of course, that's the the record he made with his greatest band with, uh, you know, that amazing like rhythm section of, of, of Dennis Davis and, and George Murray on bass and Carlos Alomar on guitar. And those five records in a row, uh, it, it, it's just amazing that with that rhythm section, he was just on the roll of his life.
1: And I'm almost tempted to give him another run late in his career. You know, because there are, I really like his 90s period. Even albums that are sort of frowned upon, like I was listening to Hours not too long ago, I, think that's, I love that. I think it's a really good record. I almost want to start another run with Black Tie White Noise and maybe just go through the end of his career. Am I stretching with that? Like, I mean, reality may be a weak point for me. Like, that would maybe kill it. Um, but otherwise, I like a lot of those records. Like, starting with that, with with Black Tie White Noise.
2: Well, I, I'm not crazy about that one. Um, the songs, the songs have their moments, but I I, I don't like how it sounds that much. Um, the one in that period that, that I keep trying to get into and I've never successfully got into, the Buddha of Suburbia, and that's one that uh, the, the people who admire it are clearly onto something. It's not a contrarian thing. There is something about that record that deeply, deeply speaks to people. Um, it seems to have a lot to do with how well you know London as a place. You can't really deny it. Londoners love that record a lot more than anybody else does.
1: See, and, yeah. I almost didn't, I, I wasn't even including that because that's like in the yellow submarine category for me. Is that like, <laughs> is, is that like a proper album or is it, because that was like a soundtrack, right? I, I,
2: you know, it, it's officially a soundtrack, but um, to people, to I, I guess to a lot of people, that was like a serious comeback after uh, White type Black Noise. It, it, you know, I mean, Black type White Noise. If, if you see Black type White Noise as, as you know, as a misstep, uh, Buddha of Suburbia, but it's a weird sort of like one-off in his discography that, you know, doesn't sound much like any of his records. And again, it like it's sort of like a jazz record about London that Londoners really do love more than other people. And, and it's, you know, it's a record that I keep trying to get into and maybe five years from now, I'll, I'll finally succeed.
1: See, I wanted to ask you about R.E.M. Because when I I wrote... This thing for Uproxx, where I was updating the, the, my column and just kind of going through all the bands that I thought applied to. To me, REM has the longest run of any band of unbroken great albums. I go from Murmur to Up, which I know is much longer probably than a lot of people go. Where do you fall on that? Like, how, like, where would you say is the cutoff for REM?
2: Uh, I would say the five greatest are, um, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of impossible to, to me, the early nineties and the early eighties are just astonishingly great periods for REM. I'm um, actually, I'm not such a huge fan of the late eighties albums and I, I've, I've never liked those records much. And, and it's, and, and clearly, you know, a lot of people do. It's just a thing of what kind of REM sound you prefer. Um, but those three late eighties records don't do a lot for me, but, you know, like I, I can't say that they're out of line with what the band did the rest of their career. Just, like, the songs just aren't there for me.
1: See, I, cause I feel like most people would say, like, REM fans would say that they fell off after Automatic for the People. I think that's sort of the traditional thing to say. And then Monster would be sort of the beginning of the decline for them, where I really like New Adventures in Hi-Fi up. I defend those records. And even, like, some of the early 2000s things, but... Um, that's sort of my controversial pick.
2: I
0: think, for yes,
2: No, uh, I I have never understood why people make such a thing of being underwhelmed by Monster. Monster is just like a, a great record. It definitely passes the test. And you know, with any band with you know uh, long discographies, it's always fun to play the pretend it's a debut test.
1: The what and test?
2: Like the pretend it's a debut test.
1: Right. Oh and yeah. You listen,
2: you listen to Monster and you think this is a band that got a major label deal and made one album in 1994 and this is it go. And it, it, it's on that level, it's a completely astounding record.
1: Exactly. That's a great, that's a great test. I like that test. I don't think I've ever heard that, but that totally makes sense. Um, and honestly you could probably apply that to a lot of, of the discographies that we've already talked about and use it to like put them as part of great runs. Um, we've been talking a lot about old artists right now or older artists. How about like in the last 10 or 15 years? Are, are there any artists that kind of come to mind that you think this would apply to that, that passed this test?
2: Well, uh, we, we talked about Taylor Swift. Yes. Who, who has, has gone five for five so far. And, and number six is, is quickly on the way. <laughs> it's funny when um, my nieces went to her last tour in Atlanta and uh, they were with a group of friends who was five girls all going together, and they they had of course they designed matching costumes and everything, and they they painted their sneakers so that each each one of of these five girls represented a different album in her catalog. <laughs> so one had the Fearless sneakers, one had the Red sneakers, one had the Speak Now sneakers, and you know one had the 1989 sneakers, and someone had the Taylor Swift sneakers. Uh, just that kind of I mean. To me, that's just kind of like a, you know, the, the ultimate triumph of, of the five-album test, where you know, the fact of these five albums all being very different from each other, having different sounds and different personalities. It's really funny that every time Taylor Swift makes a new record, I go into it thinking, wow, I really hope she makes the exact same record that she made last time. And, and every single time I think, well, thank God she isn't taking advice from nim- Nimrods like me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so how, how are you feeling going into this next one with the early singles? You know, it's been very polarizing. Do you feel like the streak is in jeopardy, or are you are? Are you kind of feeling like, well, I doubted her in the past, so I'm not going to do it till I hear the record?
2: Yeah, the early singles are not necessarily good signifiers. I mean, the first single, no, the, the the first single from 1989 was Shake It Off, and nothing on the album sounds like Shake It Off. That's the only song where she raps. You know, like <laughs> that's the only song. I mean. Shake It Off is not really indicative of how the album was going to sound. It was just kind of a warning of the sort of general themes of the record musically. And uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too bent out of shape about the advanced singles from this album. Um, but it's really amazing that in terms of an artist who like, defines the kind of album artist that we're talking about, that every single time she has a blockbuster album and the smart move would be to make that album again. It's right. not like she wears any of these formulas out. You know, Speak Now is, is a record that she, she just could have, you know, she could have gone a lot of different ways with that formula. But instead, she made Red, which sounded nothing like it. And, you know, and as we know, people at the record company were, like, just horrified by Red by the fact that she wanted to make an album that was not in any way a country record. And, and of course, the record she made after that was 1989. I mean, if, if I were giving advice to Taylor Swift, the last thing I would have said after Red, I, I would have said, make Red Part 2. Right, make Red Part Three. I would definitely not have said make an album that sounds exactly like Erasure. <laughs> make an album that sounds exactly like the first patch Up Boys album. Basically, everything Stephen Hague produced in 1986. Right, put it all in one album. Make your Communards album, Taylor. Uh, it's it's just completely astounding what a, a like contrary to conventional wisdom album that was, and the one before that, and the one before that, and that. Her winning streak is very much defined by, you know, like Stevie Wonder's or, or David Bowie's. It, it's the kind of winning streak where, you know, going different every single time is part of the part of the winning move.
1: Well, and you know, the artist that immediately comes to mind for me in the last 10 or 15 years, and of course, it, it would be this person because you said Taylor Swift, and I'm going to say Kanye West. Uh, you know, where every album is uh, is sort of its own island, and it feels like a, yeah. like a like a big chapter or a film. You know, like I, I. I think of Kanye West album, I, I almost liken him more to like a film director, like with his discography, because it feels like, oh, it's like a new Stanley Kubrick movie's out. Like now it's a new Kanye thing and it's a whole new aesthetic and a whole new sound and you're going to kind of get lost in it and kind of figure it out and maybe you won't like it at first, but you'll come around eventually. Um, I just thought it was fascinating that you know we, we recently had a run of think pieces about um, Graduation, which is the, um, the third Kanye West record I don't know if that's anyone's favorite Kanye West record. It would maybe, I think be, for a lot of people be like the fourth or fifth favorite, you know, I'm sure there's some people who would say it's their favorite, but it's not the sort of hallmark album in his career. And yet people had so much to say about it. you know, And like they had feelings about it. And, um, I can't think of another artist except maybe like a Taylor Swift or like, a, I'm sure people have those feelings about Beyonce's discography, but, um, Kanye, I think is alone in that regard, or among the only people where every album has its partisans, and uh, they have a lot invested in it um so for so him for me, and I guess that would be seven albums i think for Kanye
2: well like see, i I don't happen to like 808s and heartbreaks i just I just don't think it's a good record, and I just don't think the songs are very good, and I don't think the sound is very good
1: I love it that really record does. and i and i also and that's a, that's an instance of like weaker songs on, on that album. I'm forgiving of it just because I'm so wrapped up in sort of the story of that album and where yeah, it fits. Yeah, that's
2: kind of a, a triumph of the concept over the songs for me. And and so I, I, and, and maybe I like the, loving the concept of it, but the songs just don't measure up for me.
1: Well, and there's also you know the psychodrama of of the subtext of that record and what was going on in his life at the time. And you know I, this is another instance I think where when you become invested in an artist and their work, sometimes as a listener, you do a little bit of the extra work that maybe the artist himself or herself didn't do, you know, to make it like, well, maybe these songs aren't totally up to snuff, but I'm so interested in the story of what they're doing and how it connects to everything else they Yeah,
2: brought. I guess that's the mark of the with film directors,
1: right? So, exactly. Oh,
2: this is very interesting that you know, like that you know, Godard made this kind of movie. Exactly. Um, I, I mean. I've, Beyonce is such a fascinating case because she begins her career as an album making solo artist after having what already seemed like a long and, uh, and astounding career as, as the main focal point of a, of a group and that her, you know, her solo debut dangerously in love, you know, such a, such a great record. Of course, you remember for that, that perfect single, but that, you know, that, that she's made her, her run of, of, great solo albums, and it's just kind of astounding to think that that was her second act.
1: Right. Exactly. And, and, and I feel like, too, that there was a period in the late 2000s where people sort of wrote her off, and she was kind of, I felt like she was fading away maybe a little bit, and then there was this resurgence where she just became huger and also more respected than ever. Like, like, like Bidet period and four, like, I feel like the critical, at least, push behind those albums it was not as strong as it is now i think maybe people have gone back and they appreciate those albums more now but my memory of it at the time was that beyonce was almost becoming an afterthought maybe with some at least music critics and then
2: those, those records were more more of the same um right and it's it's funny to think like imagine going back in time five years and telling people by the way Beyonce hasn't made her great albums yet. Like, like <laughs> right. you think you know how much people love Beyonce and you think you know how huge Beyonce is and you think you know how much Beyonce matters? Like, everything she's done so far is juvenilia up to this point. Right. Like, I mean, her last two albums are just so astounding and, and so beyond her, her already lofty achievements. That it's kind of funny to, to listen. To me, it's fun to listen to four and think, wow. This was an album where we thought, wow, this is Beyonce. And like a song like Countdown was like so mind-blowing on that record, that there's lesser stuff on that record. But it's, it's funny that to think, going back in time to, you know, to 2012 and saying, by the way, you, you think you have a pretty good idea of Beyonce's place in history, the story hasn't even really started yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the only precedent would be like a Michael Jackson or something, like where Michael Jackson was in the Jackson 5, and then there was maybe a period in the 70s where it was sort of awkward, and then he does off the wall and then it's off to the races after that. Then he's like this second act that totally it doesn't totally overshadow the first act, but he becomes who he is in the second act of his career.
2: Yeah. Like when he, when he made off the wall, I mean, I, I was a little kid at the time, like a lot of little kids at the time. I had no idea that this Michael Jackson was the same guy who was the singer in the Jackson five. Right. I, I, I thought, wow, Michael Jackson—he's like he's, he's the new greatest, you know. Like, and it, it, it's kind of astounding that you know that there's there's ten years in between, and it, it, there were two like completely distinct, it, it, ethical sounds.
1: Right, Michael Jackson and Beyonce, and Wu Tang and Crosby, Stills and Nash. I think that's the big analogy that we've made in this podcast.
2: Well, and, and, and you know, and partly because you know it's probably because of the birds connections. I I, I mean, it seems like the birds are as you know, solid like if anybody defines the five album rule it's the birds.
1: Right. Well, you think so? You think yeah. they do you think they define See, I don't know. I love those birds albums. So, I would I would say that they actually had a had a big run in the 60s maybe up through uh Sweetheart of the Rodeo or so. Um but yeah, but I, but I guess I'm going to forgive also- like there's like five dimen- like fifth dimension is maybe pretty spotty, but I don't know. I tend to be forgiving of that, I guess.
2: Yeah, I, it, the birds. It's, it's a case kind of like with Al Green that that because the hits they had in this time were so astounding, and because you really can just listen to the greatest hits album, and if that's all you know, like you know, it's not like you're getting a, a lesser version of it. But all those albums, which are almost taken for granted because they were banged out so fast, and yeah. because You know, they seemed to people who weren't paying much attention to the songwriting to be very similar to each other. But all those albums have just astounding buried treasures on them.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Rob, I feel like we could go on for hours in this podcast. This is like the nerdiest episode we've ever done and also one of the most enjoyable (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, but, but yet, it hasn't reached peak nerd yet, and and you have to you have to express the opinion about Pavement's Perfect 5 album.
1: Right? Oh, to
2: complete the nerd, to complete the nerd decathlon that we're on here.
1: That's true. I mean, although, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a perfect run. It, in a way, it's perfect because Terror Twilight to me is sort of like the archetypical like last record. Like even the title seems to suggest that it's the last record, and you can also. I mean, to me, it's clearly the less, the, like the least good of those five albums. Um, but I kind of like that aspect of it. It's like, oh, they're winding down. There's, uh, you can hear, you know, like, you know, like when I was talking about Stones albums, I clearly like albums that show a band in decay. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: I, like, I like bands, yes, like,
1: I like the drama of that. Of, uh, I think it's a very sort of poignant thing when you can hear bands that are, uh, you can hear the decline happening. I think that's happening on 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 that record. You can hear them sort of transitioning into Steve Malcolm's solo career on that record. But
2: yeah, you can hear the drift. You can hear the drift apart. But I,
1: is that one of your favorite, like, sort of discographies? Would you say, like, favorite yeah. ones? Yeah.
2: I, I, you know, yes. And Terra Twilight is, you know, it's a step down from the previous four, but but uh, that's that's an astounding five album run. Kind of like the Roxy Music run in the early '70s, which is just. You know, and again, that's like, you know, in the course of like three years, they go from like the debut album to Siren. And it's like, good Lord. Right. Right. And going through massive lineup changes. They have a different basis on all those records.
1: Right. Yeah. That's a, yeah. And when you can really see an arc, when you can hear an arc like that, that's always, yeah. that, that's one of my favorite things, you know, from sort of youth to, uh, to maturity or, 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 or like vitality to decay again. I always think that's really great when you can hear that in a run. So that yeah, That might
2: be the best like five album arc as arc along with Stevie Wonder in terms of like, you know, a journey from beginning to end.
1: Yeah. Stevie Wonder is always hard for me to know where to begin it and where to end it because some days I'm I'm tempted to roll in Journey Through the Life of Plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a gesture. I love that album even though, you know, as a listening ex- experience, it's, it's definitely a step down from, from the predecessors, but I love that he made that album, you know, after being like sort of the epitome of pop music, you know, then to yeah. make this totally bizarre record after that, I think is great.
2: Yeah, but my talking book to the Intervisions, to the Fulfillings the is one of my favorites. I don't understand why those albums aren't as famous as Songs in the Key of Life, which, you know, to me is a very good record, but, you know, it, it's nowhere near the, the previous three.
1: Yeah, Intervisions to me is his pinnacle. I and I love songs in the key of life, but intervisions is like, my God, there every song's a ten on that album. Um, yeah, absolutely. But talking, you know, talking book two and yeah, fulfilling this first finale. Like you can't, you can't go wrong. And then you have um, was it music of my mind? I think is before talking yes. book, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, a,
2: a, a good lesson in the importance of album titles Because if you give an album a great statement title like Songs in the Key of Life right. And you give another album a really doofy title Like Fulfilling This Is First Finale <laughs> like, the, the good title is going to win out
1: Right, exactly that, Yeah.
2: You should have switched titles on those records
1: It's like, yeah, it's like when J.D. Salinger Called his book Catcher in the Rye It's like, oh yeah, it's a masterpiece <laughs> You don't have to read it, it's a great title Yeah, Songs in the Key of Life, you're like, oh yeah This is obviously a big statement Yes. And, and he delivered, too. I mean, of course. But, yeah. Intervisions, I, I would still put it at the top for Stevie. All right, Rob. I got to go, and I know you got to go, too. We could go for hours. I think we might have to do a part two of this at some point. Cause I agree. I have a whole list of artists that we didn't even get to. We didn't even talk about Bruce Springsteen or Prince or, you know, Queen. We
2: didn't or,
1: even talk about Husker Du yet. not Husker du. All right. Well, at some point, I'll have you back. It's always a pleasure talking with you
2: to be continued always a pleasure always an honor thank you so much
1: it feels like 10 minutes and we've already had an hour go by so
2: yeah, it, it's funny it feels like that for you it always feels like that listening and, and you know week after week your podcast always feels like damn it's over already
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate it's that that was
2: Jackson feeling at the end
1: I appreciate that man alright well Rob thank you so much we will have you back very soon thank you so much man alright man take care alright that was me and Rob Sheffield talking about the five albums test we got into it I mean, I guess that was an hour that really felt like just a couple of minutes to me. <laughs> I mean, we were just shouting out people shouting out artists. I mean, I could just talk about with that him all day. I mean, it, it was so much fun and there were a lot of artists that we didn't get to, but you know what? Maybe we'll do a sequel. I think we might have to, uh, if Rob is down, I am down. Um, guys, thanks again for listening to this episode. Um, we wouldn't have a podcast without you, without your support. So I really appreciate it. And I want you to know, uh, that we're glad that you're out there because otherwise it would just be me on the microphone and Derek would be in here with me. And uh, that'd be a very sad thing. Just be the two of us talking to each other. Who wants that? We don't want to talk to each other. We want to talk to you guys. So thank you so much for being there and letting us uh, spout opinions into your ears every week. All right, guys, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next week.